Thanks for listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast, presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. We'll take on a new horse training or horse care topic in every episode. Thanks for listening and enjoy the ride. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for listening to my podcast. And a special thanks to Smooth Stride Riding Jeans for making this podcast free to our listeners. Today's topic is how to know when you're in over your head with a horse. There's not much new to report around here. I'm, um, as usual, I'm home during the middle of the week this time of year, and I'm generally on the road on the weekends. I've got clinics and expos coming up almost every weekend from now until the beginning of July. Uh, So that's my big focus right now. I'm only home two, three days a week. And when I'm home, I'm busy doing things like this podcast, playing with my horses, um, got the new colt to play with. Um, we just finally, I finally settled on a name for him. Um, and I decided to call him Pepperoni. You may have seen in my newsletter because, uh, well, he's, um, first of all, he's very spicy. And he, so we call him Pepper. And he's a red roan. So he's the color of Pepperoni. And he's a roni. So, um, also, he's line bred Dacalina and Peppy Sam Badger. He's got some dual pep in his background. And um, so, pep is a good name for him. So, pepperoni is my favorite kind of pizza as well. So, um, I'm eager to get some more time on in this little guy. Although, right now, I'm just letting him rest. He's had a very hard uh, beginning of his two year old year with uh, four or five months of pre hard work. So, I'm going to rest him for a couple of months before I start riding him this summer. So that's about all that's new around here. Now it's time for Stride by Stride with my friend Desiree from Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. Desiree, tell me a little bit about the sizing on your jeans because it's it's really unique because they're sized by horse breeds. How, how did you yeah. come about that? Well, you know, uh, when we got to that point where we uh, were thinking about how to handle the sizing in the, the labels and the tags and everything, um, industry sizing is so all over the place. You know, I'm a size 4 or 5 in, a, in one gene, and I'm a size 8, maybe 10 in another gene with, without... Uh, a, a weight fluctuation, and so on. Eric's uh, Eric's end of it, he um, he didn't really want um, sizes to because girls would think, ladies would think, oh, I'm a size six, and then they would get a size six in our jeans, but in, but they'd be wrong. You know, they they it would be incorrect. And I, on the other hand, am a rider, and I'm not a I, I I can do math. I'm proud of myself. I can, but I didn't want to deal with numbers all day long. If you can imagine, because I, I do all the customer service, I do all the shipping, I do all the inventory, and thinking <laughs> 32, 33, 36, 29 length, and 30, and 20, you know, 6 or 8 and 10. And uh-huh. so I said to Eric, I said, why don't we just give them all breed names? And, you know, we the three lengths. And uh, so he gave me that delicious, and this is one of the things that I love about um, the company is that I get to be creative. Um, and so uh, I came up with this uh, list of names and that's, and that's what we did. We just 
decided to give them all breed names, and it's really, really fun. Gals absolutely love it. They can't wait to put a tape measure around their body and find out what breed size they are. <laughs> Just fun, you know. So what, can you run through the breeds slash sizes starting from uh, one end down, uh, from the bottom up or the top down? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll start the smallest, and it correlates to a standard industry size four. So we named that the Arabian, so that's the smallest one. And uh, then the next tw- next size up is a Mustang, size six. Then there's a paint, size eight. Then we have the Andalusian, size 10. Then a Lusitano, size 12. Appaloosa, 14. And then we're starting to get into the plus sizes. Morgan, size 16. Frisian, size 18. Palomino is a 20. Lipizzan is the 22. We are fading out the very last one, Nakota, because um, it's it's a gene that uh, is uh, just a, just a, believe it or not, it's a little bit too big for everybody. So we're 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 going to be uh, fading that one out. So those are the breed names. Wow, that's that's uh, funny because it's funny to think about the the actual horses and the breeds, but. Also, wow, you have a lot of sizes starting uh, starting with the smallest four and, and right up the size chart. So that's great. And then I know you have three different lengths. So um, tell me just quickly um, another really unique thing that I think that relates to the sizes because a, a lot of people aren't sure where they are on that scale and they might fit somewhere in between. So you came up with a pretty unique um, customer service advantage, uh, I think, in the way you l- allow people to order riding jeans. Yep, that's another one of the fun, um, creative things that I came up with, and um, I call it my cult special. And, a- again, it kind of goes back to behavior on the ground because, you know, you've got a cult, and you work with it, and 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 then so basically, um, a girl will uh, a gal will take her measurements, and she'll look at the sizing chart. We even have a size calculator now that you can enter in your measurements, and it'll spit out the two breed names that uh, you should try. So, so a gal will take her measurements, and she'll choose two sizes of jeans that she thinks will work for her. She'll go ahead and make the order, or I can do it here. I do a lot of orders by phone. And then I ship them out in a bag that you can reseal with a prepaid return label. That's part of the special is that I pay for the return because when it's a good colt, I call it a good colt, when it when a girl gets one or she gets them and then one fits and she loves it and keeps it and is happy as can be, and then she turns around and puts the unwanted gene that didn't fit back in that bag with the prepaid return label, and all she has to do is put it right in her mailbox because I almost exclusively use USPS uh, priority, and it's fast and it's inexpensive, and then she ships it back. I don't charge. It's authorized only because I have to do that in case I never see my jeans again, but I don't charge until she tells me she wants to keep one and the other one gets back home, and then and only then do I charge, and she has up to 30 days. We have 30 days to do this exercise. And it is one of the things that's really making this work for me, for, for, the, for the genes personally, because having the two to try invariably one fits 
And if it doesn't, the gal gets to feel them, put them on, and decide if they want to continue on with switching it out. And that's what I do. I do all that customer service myself. She says, I love them. We just missed, she, you know, missed one size. I need one size smaller, one size larger. Shoot it on out, and then I charge. And it's all good, and it's done. Wow, that is so awesome. And actually, I have a couple of friends that that took advantage of the Colt special. Um, of course, I wear the jeans all the time. I, I It's all I wear when I'm home, and it's gotten to be just about all I wear when I'm working on the road, too. And so a lot of people say, wow, where'd you get those jeans? <laughs> and uh, I just give them your web, website and um, get the Colt special and get both sizes. And they were so thrilled to to be able to do that, and it was so easy. And the fact that you don't even charge until they return the second pair of pants. But in in at least one of the instances of my two friends, they ended up keeping the other pair because another friend wanted them. And mm-hmm. uh, so it was sort of a win-win situation for everybody. So I think that's really cool, and it's it's something that's nice about a small company that is entrepreneur-run, mm-hmm. And you know your customer. You are your customer. Yes. I am yep. your customer. You know the customer very well because you are the customer. And yep. uh, I think that's really awesome what you do. Thank you. Thank you. Before we get started in the podcast today, I just got some late-breaking news that Desiree from Smooth Stride Riding Jeans has made the decision to retire her uh, eventing horse, Lord Stark. And sadly, he has kissing spine, uh, pretty serious, sadly not uncommon in thoroughbreds. Um, And it's going to require permanent retiring from riding for Lord Stark. And we're so sorry about that, Desiree. But the exciting news is that you'll be on the hunt for a new horse. And so you'll have a new project soon. Um, everybody keep your eyes out for a nice eventing prospect for Desiree. And, uh, we wish you luck in that, in that hunt. And it's actually a very timely subject on today's topic. So good luck, Desiree. Welcome to the main segment of my podcast. And today we're going to talk about a really lofty subject. And this is a question that comes from uh, one of our viewers, one of our listeners, Um, Judy is her name. And her question is, oops, the wrong piece of paper. At what point should you give up on a particular horse? Or rather, did I get the wrong horse for me? Those are two um, different questions, and um, and they beg a lot of other questions. So I'm just going to jump right in there and get started on this topic. So, uh, Judy, thanks for asking it. It's a big subject. It's one that comes up in almost every clinic that I do. Um, it is a subject that is a particular note these days in horsemanship and by these days i mean that we are at an era in the horse industry where there are a lot of 
unwanted horses. There are a lot of abandoned horses. There are a lot of horses in rescue situation and no need to expand upon all of the reasons that led up to this situation. Um, feral horses is another uh, part of that equation. Um, so a lot of people are dealing with horses um, that came out of rescue or that have come into an adoption pipeline with little or no training. And um, so that's, that's one reason why this is a particularly important subject now, uh, currently. Um, but always and throughout time, people have ended up with a horse that was inappropriate for them. And so really what we're talking about is as a big subject is suitability, suitability of horse to rider. And, um, but, but only as it relates to, I already have this horse. I'm not sure it's the right match for me. What do I do about it? How do I know? Um, on occasion, to be honest, I've used the analogy of being in a bad marriage. If you were in a marriage where you were getting uh, beat up or verbally abused, um, humiliated, frustrated, um, if, if you felt like it was a relationship that was never going to change um, and that it was not within your power to, to exact the changes that needed making, then you would have to, to consider, um, is that a marriage? Is this the way you want to spend the rest of your life? And so I think there's a lot of similarities with horses there. And um, so let's talk about why someone might be in that situation to begin with. Like I already said, maybe you rescued or adopted a horse with little or no training and you have subsequently discovered you are not capable of handling that horse in a safe and fun way. Um, you could also have a horse that um, you've outgrown um, or your interests changed and you discovered this horse was totally unsuited to your new interests. So let's say I um, have this lovely Clydesdale mare I adopted from the rescue and I met some new friends and my new riding interests have taken me to barrel racing. Probably not going to be very successful with that Clydesdale. And so um, that could be another reason that it, it, it's time to, to accept the fact that this is not the right horse for you. So um, first and foremost, if we look at the reasons why, if what you're trying to do is decide to cut bait on a horse, I don't mean to be you know rude or frank, but if the decision is, do I stay in this relationship or not? There's so many factors involved with that. But first and foremost is your personal safety. If there is any question going forward about your personal safety with this horse, are you have you fallen off this horse or gotten bucked off or whatever, run over? Have you been hurt by this horse before? Are you in a position that you can afford to get hurt? Um, most of us would say no to that question, by the way. Um, and, and particularly, you know, with every year and decade that goes by, it's a bigger no to that question. So um, if there's any question at all about your personal safety, um, 
then I, I think you have to default to no, this is not the right horse for you. And you do need to cut bait and figure out a good resolution for this horse and find a horse that's more appropriate uh, for your level. So, um, and I don't really think that needs a lot of detail or discussion. You, you know, if your safety is at risk now, you know, all horse sports are risky, but think about the difference of the risk of doing a risky sport on a well-trained appropriate animal versus let's say a wild and crazy horse. So, um, consider that your, your personal safety, uh, and then, um, you know, maybe a component of that is the horse's training and background. Um, is it commensurate with yours? Is this a horse that has training issues, either a lack of training or poor training or a traumatic or abusive past? Or is this um, a horse that requires professional training? Um, be, be realistic about your own and not just your skill level, do you, but that's important. Number one, are you qualified? Do you have the skill level to um, train this horse, to improve this horse, to help this horse? Number two is, do you have the time to commit to it? Because guess what, people? You don't train horses one half hour session a week. That gets you pretty much nowhere with horses. So horses that have training issues, um, horses that uh, require reprogramming, retraining, desensitizing, stabilizing, that requires daily attention. You know, you're on the uh, five to six day a week category, not um, Tuesdays and Thursdays for 45 minutes. So um, do you realistically have the skill level and do you realistically have the time to devote to training or reprogramming this horse or giving him what he needs. So, um, and by the way, if, if all your horse needs is professional training and you have extra money sitting around to the tune of probably a thousand dollars a month, I would say probably, you know, six, at least six months worth of training. So, so let's say you have six to $10,000 sitting around, you want to put into the horse's training, then your only problem is to find a qualified trainer that will take the horse. Um, that's not easy either. Um, but uh, first you have to have the money to spend. So assuming that's not an option, then you have to think about your own personal skill level. Um, beyond safety and training, when it comes to knowing whether or not it's time to um, to end a relationship with a horse you already have because you think it might be appropriate, did I get the wrong horse for me? Um, a really close second to safety is your own personal fulfillment. Why are you doing this anyway? Is it to create more risk and stress and aggravation and frustration in your life? Or is it to have fun, fulfill a passion, be involved in a really fun and cool riding sport, have a relationship with a really cool, willing, friendly, well-trained, well-mannered animal? Is it to save animals, uh, rescue? Because that, that's, a good, that's a good thing to do. But be realistic about your capabilities and, and, and what you ho hope to accomplish. 
Um, for me, I, I know that my involvement with horses is has a whole lot to do with my personal passion for the animal, for nature, for the outdoors. Uh, I love everything about studying animal behavior and training and horse keeping. Um, so there is a personal pr- uh, fulfillment factor there. And I often, when people ask me this question that comes up, I get asked a lot at expos one-on-one with people and they say, you know, is this the right horse for me? What should I do? Um, beyond safety is this is supposed to be fun. You should be so excited to go to the barn the next day. You should be in a have a feeling that I can't wait to do this thing tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to be the best ride I've ever had on this horse. You know, I, I've got as some of you may know, I have a brand new colt, and it just kills me to sit in here in front of the computer all day working when I'm home when I could be out there playing with this colt. Um, so that's what this is about. This is about having fun. This is about personal fulfillment. Um, this is about attaining goals, working hard towards them, getting educated, exercise. This endeavor can be a lot of about a lot of things, but if you are stuck in a relationship with a horse that scares you, that uh, you're at risk of getting hurt every day, um, that frustrates you because the training level of you and this horse are not matching up real well, um question why you're doing this and at the end of the day there should be some really big personal fulfillment motives there and if this horse isn't giving you that then let's talk about what we do next How, how do we get to that situation so um so those are the main things that i think about in terms of is this the right horse for you and and um Uh, I'll just, you know, to put some final thoughts on the subject, I think personal safety is first and foremost, and your own personal fulfillment is a very close second. And I say to people all the time this very thing. I know for me that I'll be 59 years old this year, and for me, I want every minute I spend with my horse to be the best. And I want every ride I have to be the best ride I ever had. Um, I don't have much time to ride my own personal horses. I ride a lot of horses every week, but not my own personal horses that much. So I want every ride to be the best I can have. I don't have time for a project. Life is too short to be dealing with a horse that I don't enjoy riding or that scares me in any way, or that puts myself at risk. I'm not into that at all. Um, so I have some pretty high standards of what I expect out of the horse. And and if I'm not reaching that, I, I look at solutions. So, um, and finally, the third point I would make is there's suitability of sport. Um, there's suitability of size and temperament and skill level between the horse and the rider. Um, I always tell people, if you're going to spend money on anything for a horse, spend it on training, spend it on a horse that has a lot of training and a lot of experience. And um, because then you have an instant gratification package waiting for you at the barn. 
Um, so those are the main points that I would offer you on, uh, Judy, on your question of um, at what point should I consider giving up on a personal horse? You're going to have to ask those questions of yourself and of the horse you have. Um, then, of course, the next subject that comes up might be a good uh, another podcast is, well, okay, I've determined this is not the right horse for me. What do I do now? So that's a double-edged sword. We, first and foremost, have to find the right resolution for the horse you have. Um, and for, for every horse, there's a good resolution. So it's just a matter of exploring the options and figuring it out. Um, and then second, you have to find the right horse to replace them with. So, um, so that's another subject I would say for another day. I'd like to remind everybody that I've got lots of clinics coming up. The next two months are filled with clinic stops for me on my clinic tour. So I love the chance to work with you and your horse in the arena. And if you can't bring your horse, be sure to come as a spectator. It's lots of fun. We eat, sleep, and breathe, and think and talk horses all weekend long. So I hope you'll join me for more information on my clinics. Feel free to call my office and speak to one of my friendly and knowledgeable staff members. That's 719-530-0531. Or you can find all the information you need to register as a rider or to purchase spectator tickets at juliegoodnight.com slash clinics. Hope to see you at a clinic stop near you. And now it's time for my favorite segment. What the hey Q&A. So our first question comes from Beth Chapman. And she asks, uh, when I'm riding in the arena with my horse, he always bulldozes his way to the gate. How do I stop this? <laughs> okay. Well, that's a good way of putting it. Um, because by that phrasing, he bulldozes his way to the gate. <laughs> I know exactly what he's doing. Um, he's running through the bridle, and um, that's a good way of putting that, bulldozing. <laughs> that's maybe a better term than running through the bridle, which people don't always understand. Um, so you've got some big, major, blatant obedience problems, um, and you're trying to fix them by grabbing two reins and trying to stop and turn all at once and none of it's working. And so the horse is just running through the pressure. I'd be willing to guess you're riding in a snaffle bridle. Um, and so almost always when a horse is running through the bridle, it's, uh, it doesn't have to be a snaffle, but it often is. Horse can run through any bridle. Um, but he more often, uh, he often runs through the snaffle bridle. And almost always when that horse is running through the snaffle bridle or any bridle, the rider is pulling uh, relentless and static pressure on two reins at the same time. And so when the horse gets static and relentless pressure on his mouth, he starts moving into the pressure. Horses move into static pressure, period. Um, so static means unchanging. And so if you go up, you should try this experiment sometime. It's kind of fun. Uh just like that picture on my computer right there. If you go stand up next to a horse and just start slowly leaning on him, 
um, in a real static way, pretty soon you'll find he starts leaning back. If you hold static contact on the reins, the horse starts leaning into the reins. Eventually, as time goes on, the horse actually starts uh, bulldozing through the reins, which it sounds like you're describing. And um, so one rein is always better than two, whether you're stopping or turning, always when you're turning. Um, and two reins don't really turn the horse. And so um, if there's pressure on two reins, the horse ha has a hard time executing a turn. You're in the snaffle with pressure on two reins. You're pulling them this way and this way at the same time. So he just goes through it. Um, so that's one problem, but that does not fix your disobedience problem because that's your first and foremost problem. So always, whenever we look at training issues and improving the training of the horse, obedience is always first and foremost. Obedience is always the number one priority in your training program. And at any moment that your horse becomes disobedient, you stop what you're doing and start working on your horse's obedience. And let me give you an example of that. What, what did she say, Megan? She said, when I do something, he just run bulldozes to the gate. Um, when she's riding in the arena. She, he when she's riding in the arena. Just every time she's in the arena. Okay. Yeah. Um, so... So you, you have a horse that's just basically refusing to work. He's saying, uh, up yours, I'm not going to do this. I'm leaving and I'm going towards the gate. So a lot of times when people go to the arena, they say, oh, I'm going to the arena because we're going to work on collection or we're going to work on cantering on the correct lead or we're going to work on slowing down the trot. But you have some training objective. And so us humans, we get on this human agenda and we say, what I'm going to work on today is collection at the trot. And so um, we go to the arena with that agenda and our horse becomes disobedient. And maybe subtly at first, he starts slowing down or speeding up or cutting the corners. Um, his disobediences are small at first and you're so stuck on your agenda that what I'm here today is, what did I say? Work on slowing down the trot or collection of the trot or whatever. You stay focused on that agenda, failing to notice that your horse has long become disobedient. At any moment, your horse becomes disobedient. Your previous, previous agenda is out the window and you are now working on regaining your horse's obedience. And first and foremost, an obedient horse goes in the direction dictated by the rider at a speed chosen by the rider without any argument. And so your horse is blatantly and willfully disobedient. I would say almost certainly you have been complicit in this in some way that he thinks he's allowed to do that. And you're pulling on two reins at the same time is probably probably triggering that disobedience. Um, you may have driven your horse to the disobedience by pulling on two reins all the time. So those are the things that I would look at. And um, thanks for that great question. I hope that helps. Um, what, what's another question, Megan? Okay, so we have um, a 
couple. I'm not sure if this one is um, too much for today, but I thought it was a, um, a good one, a timely one, because a lot of people are getting their vets in uh, to do vaccinations and stuff. Um, so Jerry um, says that he has a mare who's fine around him, but rears in fear when a veter veterinarian is near. Let's see. He said, I can worm her and give her shots with no issue, but the vets can't. I can't draw blood for Coggins or I'd do that. Um, what do I do to help her relax and not be fearful? My other three mares don't have this issue with vets. Um, she was a rescue and an ex-racehorse. Uh, not sure if that makes a difference. And she doesn't seem to like many men. Yeah, well, um that is a big question. I don't know that your, your veterinarian is going to have to help you with that. And hopefully he or she is an understanding and patient person. Um, it's not hard for a horse to create that kind of fearful association with a, a veterinarian. My horse, Dooley, um, he's been getting a lot of joint injections um, he's uh, very has a very low tolerance of pain and needles, um, and he just quivers in his boots. But he's a well-trained horse that has that knows he has to mind his manners, even when he's scared. And my vet is very understanding and patient, and moves slowly with him and pets on him a lot, and is very careful around him always. Um, I like to have a vet that is willing to sort of put on dirty coveralls and a dirty jacket and come to my horse's pen away from their truck. So all the little, all the little signs of that, this is a veterinarian aren't there uh, like a white lab coat and a, the smell of alcohol. Um, but if she will let you do the work on her, I, I think you should do as much work as you can. If, you can, and uh, hopefully your veterinarian is willing and patient enough that he or she will teach you how to draw blood or um, help you in that way too, to do more of the work on the horse. Um, but there's always going to be some things that you can't do. Otherwise we wouldn't need a veterinarian. I would get the vaccines from the vet and I would just explain um, I'm going to give these vaccines cause she'll tolerate me. But if you, if you know, you're going to once a year have to draw blood for Coggins, um, and do any other treatment, I would go ahead and sedate the horse with an oral, um, tranquilizer before the vet comes well before the vet comes, I would try to treat the horse in an area that she was not suspecting a veterinarian would be treating her. I don't know where that would be in your indoor arena where you only ride or something. Um, and ask for your vet's cooperation in letting you do what you can and then sedating the horse orally long before the vet comes. And I would suggest that vet just go ahead and give in another sedation um, right off the bat or letting you give it. Um, but you probably need to be taught how to do an intravenous injection because this if this mare colics and she needs banamine it should be given iv it doesn't have to be but it should be um 
So I'd work on your skills there, get you, get your IV skills going, um, work with your veterinarian on desensitizing this horse. And you do, you do as much of the work as you can on your, on your horse's self yourself and explain why get the drugs, get the vaccines from your vet. We can do one more. Okay. So this one is from uh, another Jerry, Jerry Linton. Um, do you have any tips on how to slow down the canter? Sure. Slowing down the canter. Um, well, that's a popular question. Uh, pretty much every clinic I've ever done, somebody asked that. Um, so first of all, uh, you, you know, one standard answer is we go back to the tenets of classical horsemanship and the tenets of classical horsemanship are bits of wisdom that have survived um, more than 5,000 years of riding horses. And so there it's valuable. It's a very valuable foundation of knowledge and classical horsemanship tells us that the best way to improve the canter is always to improve the trot. And so, and what this means basically is that for both the horse and rider, separately and together, um, improving your skills at the trot will lead to an improved canter. And the reason why is because the trot is a much more functional gait. You can ride it in many different ways. You can, um, you know, train it many different things at the trot, every maneuver, um, every direction, circles, serpentines, uh, collection, extension. There's just so much to be accomplished at the trot that by the time you really accomplish all these skills, a cantering becomes almost a, a, a nothing sandwich. So that's one thing. So working on your collection skill, being able to ride, you know, at least three really solidly distinct different speeds at the trot and your horse would maintain those speeds, hold those speeds himself um, on a loose rein, on contact, so on and so forth. Then, um, so when it comes to slowing down the canter, your options become much more limited. Um, I always recommend it, uh, re first recommend a trot, a trot exercise for slowing down the trot involving changes of direction. So you trot a small circle to the right. And when you feel the horse slow down because the circle's getting smaller and smaller, you let him go straight on a loose rein. And when you feel him speed up, you gradually bring him on a small circle left, smaller and smaller and smaller at the trot till you feel him slow down. And then you let him go straight on a loose rein. And so with good timing, in very short order, your horse will be going slower and slower and slower on a looser and looser and loose rein. But you can't do that exercise at the canter because you, the horse has to change leads every time you change direction. So my favorite exercises for slowing down the canter, first and foremost, is doing a lot of cantering. Um, if you're only cantering, you know, uh, one time around the arena or for 10 or 20 strides um, and that's all you canter that horse, I would just like quadruple or 10 times the amount of cantering you're doing first because if he's getting enough canter, he'll be slowing down all on his own because that's a lot of work for a horse and he doesn't want to keep doing it. Second of all, I always want to, one thing that will never work and slowing down the canter is using two reins to slow the horse down. 
using your reins to slow the horse down the canter never works and it almost always results in the horse actually going faster so <clears throat> we're going to rule out the possibility of using two reins at the canter to slow down i like to use bending for slowing down the canter so and also keep in mind that not all horses have the ability to canter very slowly canter is not the natural gait to the horse gallop is and depending on the horse's age and athletic ability he can only canter so slow and so make sure you're not asking more of this horse than he's capable of giving but I always start out young green horses cantering with a lot of forward impulsion, so really a hand gallop. And then slowly in time through miles and miles of hand gallop, we slowly start slowing down that canter. As I'm actively working that horse on slowing down the canter, I just put him on a bending arcing circle, a big, wide, large arcing circle and I will gradually in increase the bend in the neck and shoulder of the horse until he has to slow down. As soon as I feel him go a few strides slower, I'll let him go straight. If he gradually speeds up again, I'll bring him back onto an arcing circle, bringing my hand towards the horn. Whatever you do, don't pull down on the rein and don't lean into that circle. Um, you'll be pulling the horse down onto his shoulder and that'll make him speed up. But if he's truly lifting that inside shoulder and arcing in that turn, uh, because I'm lifting the inside rein and bringing it up and in front of the saddle, up in front of the horn of the saddle or the pommel of the saddle to really increase the arc through the horse's body, it will slow him down. Uh, one more simple exercise that you can do to slow down the canter and this works particularly well on horses that are just really fast and they, they lurch into the canter at a really high speed. Um, ask them to canter, but only go about six or seven strides and then bring them back to a slow sitting trot. Trot for a ways around the arena and then ask them to canter, but only go six or eight strides. Do that a lot, like eight or 10 times in every session um, on each lead go five strides, go seven strides, go six strides, go eight strides, but never more than 10 strides. And so with um, a day or two of repetition of that, your horse will be starting out the canter thinking about a downward transition. So he'll, you'll find he starts cantering slower and slower. And so then you can start asking for 10 to 12 strides, 10 to 15 strides before you bring them back down to a trot. So that's a real simple exercise um, that works great for slowing down um, the canter. So between all of that, you ought to have a horse that is just super slow, slow as his capability allows uh, in no time. So good luck. I want to thank you guys for joining me on my podcast and I hope you had some good takeaway information and come back and visit again often. Enjoy the ride. Thank you to Smooth Stride Riding Jeans for sponsoring this podcast. They make it possible for you to listen for free. 
be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com academy for more in-depth training advice. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate your good review on iTunes so more horse lovers just like you can find my podcast. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to enjoy the ride.